Chapter 1 of Conan and the Queen of the Black Coast. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Conan and the Queen of the Black Coast by Robert E. Howard. This story was first published in Weird Tales, May 1934. Chapter One Conan Joins the Pirates Believe green buds awaken in the spring, That autumn paints the leaves with somber fire. Believe I held my heart inviolate, To lavish on one man my hot desire. The Song of Belit Hoofs drummed down the street that sloped to the wharves. The folk that yelled and scattered, had only a fleeting glimpse of a mailed figure on a black stallion, a wide scarlet cloak flowing out on the wind. Far up the street came the shout and clatter of pursuit, but the horseman did not look back. He swept out onto the wharfs and jerked the plunging stallion back on its haunches at the very lip of the pier. Seamen gaped up at him as they stood to the sweep and striped sail of a high-proud, broad-waisted galley. The master, sturdy and black-bearded, stood in the bows, easing her away from the piles with a boat-hook. 
He yelled angrily as the horseman sprang from the saddle and, with a long leap, landed squarely on the mid-deck. "'Who invited you aboard?' "'Get on the way!' roared the intruder with a fierce gesture that splattered red drops from his broadsword. "'But we're bound for the coasts of Kush,' expostulated the master. "'Then I'm for Kush. Push off, I tell you!' The other cast a quick glance up the street, along which a squad of horsemen were galloping, for behind them toiled a group of archers, crossbows on their shoulders. "'Can you pay for your passage?' demanded the master. "'I pay my way with steel!' roared the man in armor, brandishing the great sword that glittered bluely in the sun. "'By Crom, man, if you don't get under way, I'll drench this galley in the blood of its crew.' The shipmaster was a good judge of men. One glance at the dark, scarred face of the swordsman, hardened with passion, and he shouted a quick order, thrusting strongly against the piles. The galley wallowed out into clear water, the oars began to clack rhythmically, then a puff of wind filled the shimmering sail, the light ship heeled to the gust, then took her course like a swan gathering headway as she skimmed along. On the wharves the riders were shaking their swords and shouting threats and commands that the ship put about, and yelling for the bowmen to hasten before the craft was out of arbalest range. "'Let them rave,' grinned the swordsman heartily. "'Do you keep her on a course, Master Steersman?' The master descended from the small deck between the bows, made his way between the rows of oarsmen, and mounted the mid-deck. The stranger stood there, with his back to the mast, eyes narrowed alertly, sword ready. The shipmen eyed him steadily, careful not to make any move toward the long knife in his belt. He saw a tall, powerfully built figure in a black scale-mail hauberk, burnished greaves, and a blue steel helmet from which jutted bull's horns highly polished. From the mailed shoulders fell the scarlet cloak, blowing in the sea-wind. A broad shagreen belt with a golden buckle held the scabbard of the broadsword he wore. Under the horned helmet a square-cut black mane contrasted with smoldering blue eyes. "'If we must travel together,' said the master, "'we may as well be at peace with each other. My name is Tito, licensed master shipman of the ports of Argos. I am bound for Kush, to trade beads and silk and sugar and brass-hilted swords to the black kings for ivory, copra, copper ore, slaves, and pearls.' The swordsman glanced back at the rapidly receding docks, where the figures still gesticulated helplessly, evidently having trouble in finding a boat swift enough to overhaul the fast-sailing galley. "'I am Conan, a Cimmerian,' he answered. "'I came into Argos seeking employment, but with no wars forward there was nothing to which I might turn my hand.' "'Why do the guardsmen pursue you?' asked Tito. Not that it's any of my business, but I thought, perhaps— I have nothing to conceal, replied the Cimmerian. By Crom, though, I've spent considerable time among you civilized peoples. Your ways are still beyond my comprehension. Well, last night in a tavern, a captain in the King's Guard offered violence to the sweetheart of a young soldier, 
who naturally ran him through. But it seems there is some cursed law against killing guardsmen, and the boy and his girl fled away. It was brooded about that I was seen with them, and so today I was hailed into court, and a judge asked me where the lad had gone. I replied that, since he was a friend of mine, I would not betray him. Then the court waxed wrath, and the judge talked a great deal about my duty to the state and society, and other things I did not understand, and bade me tell where my friend had flown. By this time I was becoming wrathful myself, for I had explained my position. But I choked my ire and held my peace, and the judge squalled that I had shown contempt for the court, and that I should be hurled into a dungeon to rot until I betrayed my friend. So then, seeing they were all mad, I drew my sword and cleft the judge's skull. Then I cut my way out of the court, and seeing the high constable stallion tied nearby, I rode for the wharfs, where I thought to find a ship bound for foreign parts. "'Well,' said Tito heartily, "'the courts have fleeced me too often in suits with rich merchants for me to owe them any love.' I'll have questions to answer if I ever anchor in that port again, but I can prove I acted under compulsion. You may as well put up your sword. We're peaceable sailors and have nothing against you. Besides, it's all as well to have a fighting man like yourself on board. Come up on the poop deck and we'll have a tankard of ale. Good enough, readily responded the Cimmerian, sheathing his sword. The Argus was a small, sturdy ship typical of those trading crafts which ply between the ports of Zighara and Argos and the southern coasts, hugging the shoreline and seldom venturing far into the open ocean. It was high of stern, with a tall curving prow, broad in the waist, sloping beautifully to stem and stern. It was guided by the long sweep from the poop, and propulsion was furnished mainly by the broad-striped silk sail, aided by a jib-sail. The oars were for use in tacking out of creeks and bays and during calms. There were ten to the side, five fore and five aft of the small mid-deck. The most precious part of the cargo was lashed under this deck and under the foredeck. The men slept on deck or between the rowers' benches, protected in bad weather by canopies. With twenty men at the oars, three at the sweep, and the shipmaster, the crew was complete. So the Argus pushed steadily southward, with consistently fair weather. The sun beat down from day to day with fiercer heat, and the canopies were run up, striped silken cloths that matched the shimmering sail and the shining gold work on the prow and along the gunwales. They sighted the coast of Shem, long rolling meadowlands with the white crowns of the towers of cities in the distance, and horsemen with blue-black beards and hooked noses, who sat on their steeds along the shore and eyed the galley with suspicion. She did not put in. There was scant profit in trade with the sons of Shem. Nor did Master Tito pull into the broad bay where the Styx River emptied its gigantic flood into the ocean, and the massive black castles of Kemi loomed over the blue waters. Ships did not put unasked into this port, 
where dusky sorcerers wove awful spells in the murk of sacrificial smoke mounting eternally from blood-stained altars, where naked women screamed, and where set the old serpent, arch-demon of the Hyborians, but god of the Stygians, was said to writhe his shining coils among his worshippers. Master Tito gave that dreary glass-floored bay a wide berth, even when a serpent-proud gondola shot from behind a castellated point of land, and naked dusky women, with great red blossoms in their hair, stood and called to his sailors, and posed and postured brazenly. Now no more shining towers rose inland. They had passed the southern borders of Stygia, and were cruising along the coasts of Cush. The sea and the ways of the sea were never-ending mysteries to Conan, whose homeland was among the high hills of the northern uplands. The wanderer was no less of interest to the sturdy seamen, few of whom had ever seen one of his race. They were characteristic Argosian sailors, short and stockily built. Conan towered above them, and no two of them could match his strength. They were hardy and robust but his was the endurance and the vitality of a wolf, his thews steeled and his nerves wetted by the hardness of his life in the world's wastelands. He was quick to laugh, quick and terrible in his wrath. He was a valiant trencherman, and strong drink was a passion and a weakness with him. Naive as a child in many ways, unfamiliar with the sophistry of civilization, he was naturally intelligent, jealous of his rights, and dangerous as a hungry tiger. Young in years, he was hardened in warfare and wandering, and his sojourns in many lands were evident in his apparel. His horned helmet was such as was worn by the golden-haired Aesir of Nordheim. His hauberk and greaves were of the finest workmanship of Koth. The fine ring-mail which sheathed his arms and legs was of Nemedia. The blade at his girdle was a great Aquilonian broadsword, and his gorgeous scarlet cloak could have been spun nowhere but in Ophir. So they beat southward, and Master Tito began to look for the high-walled villages of the black people. But they found only smoking ruins on the shore of a bay, littered with naked black bodies. Tito swore. I had good trade here aforetime. This is the work of pirates. And if we meet them? Conan loosened his great blade in its scabbard. Mine is no warship. We run, not fight. Yet if it comes to a pitch, we have beaten off reavers before, and might do it again, unless it were Belit's tigress. Who is Belit? The wildest she-devil unhanged. Unless I read the signs wrong, it was her butchers who destroyed that village on the bay. May I some day see her dangling from the yard-arm. She is called the Queen of the Black Coast. She is a Shemite woman who leads black raiders. They harry the shipping and have sent many a good tradesman to the bottom. From under the poop-deck, Tito brought out quilted jerkings, steel caps, bows, and arrows. Little use to resist if we're run down, 
he grunted. But it rasps the soul to give up life without a struggle. It was just at sunrise when the lookout shouted a warning. Around the long point of an island off the starboard bow glided a long, lethal shape, a slender serpentine galley, with a raised deck that ran from stem to stem. Forty oars on each side drove her swiftly through the water, and the low rail swarmed with naked blacks that chanted and clashed spears on oval shields. From the masthead floated a long crimson pennon. "'Belit!' yelled Tito, paling. "'Yar! Put her about! Into that creek mouth! If we can beach her before they run us down, we have a chance to escape with our lives!' So, veering sharply, the Argus ran for the line of surf that boomed along the palm-fringed shore. Tito, striding back and forth, exhorted the panting rowers to greater efforts. The master's black beard bristled. His eyes glared. "'Give me a bow,' requested Conan. "'It's not my idea of a manly weapon, but I learned archery among the Hyrcanians.' "'And it will go hard if I can't feather a man or so on yonder deck.' Standing on the poop, he watched the serpent-like ship skimming lightly over the waters, and, landsman though he was, it was evident to him that the Argus would never win that race. Already arrows arching from the pirate's deck were falling with a hiss into the sea not twenty paces astern. "'We'd best stand to it,' growled the Cimmerian. Else we'll all die with shafts in our backs, and not a blow dealt. "'Bend to it, dogs!' roared Tito, with a passionate gesture of his brawny fist. The bearded rowers grunted, heaved at the oars, while their muscles coiled and knotted, and sweat started out on their hides. The timbers of the stout little galley creaked and groaned, as the men fairly ripped her through the water. The wind had fallen. The sail hung limp. Nearer crept the inexorable raiders, and they were still a good mile from the surf when one of the steersmen fell, gagging across a sweep, a long arrow through his neck. Tito sprung to take his place, and Conan, bracing his feet wide on the heaving poop-deck, lifted his bow. He could see the details of the pirates plainly now. The rowers were protected by a line of raised mantelets along the sides but the warriors dancing on the narrow deck were in full view. These were painted and plumed and mostly naked, brandishing spears and spotted shields. On the raised platform in the bows stood a slim figure whose white skin glistened in dazzling contrast to the glossy ebon hides about it. Belit, without a doubt. Conan drew the shaft to his ear, then some whim or qualm stayed his hand, and sent the arrow through the body of a tall-plumed spearman beside her. Hand over hand the pirate galley was overhauling the lighter ship. Arrows fell in a rain about the Argus, and men cried out. All the steersmen were down, pin-cushioned, and Tito was handling the massive sweep alone. Gasping black curses, his braced legs, knots of straining thews. Then, with a sob, he sank down, a long shaft quivering in his sturdy heart. The Argus lost headway and rolled in the swell, 
The men shouted in confusion, and Conan took command in characteristic fashion. "'Up, lads!' he roared, loosing with a vicious twang of cord. "'Grab your steel and give these dogs a few knocks before they cut our throats. "'Useless to bend your backs any more. They'll board us ere we can row another fifty paces.' In desperation the sailors abandoned their oars and snatched up their weapons. It was valiant, but useless. They had time for one flight of arrows before the pirate was upon them. With no one at the sweep, the Argus rolled broadside, and the steel-baked prow of the raider crashed into her amidships. Grappling irons crunched into the side. From the lofty gunwales the black pirates drove down a volley of shafts that tore through the quilted jackets of the doomed sailormen, then sprang down, spear in hand, to complete the slaughter. On the deck of the pirate lay half a dozen bodies, an earnest of Conan's archery. The fight on the Argus was short and bloody. The stocky sailors, no match for the tall barbarians, were cut down to a man. Elsewhere the battle had taken a peculiar turn. Conan, on the high-pitched poop, was on a level with the pirate's deck. As the steel prow slashed into the Argus, he braced himself and kept his feet under the shock, casting away his bow. A tall corsair, bounding over the rail, was met in mid-air by the Cimmerian's great sword, which sheared him cleanly through the torso, so that his body fell one way and his legs another. Then, with a burst of fury that left a heap of mangled corpses along the gunwales, Conan was over the rail and on the deck of the Tigress. In an instant he was in the center of a hurricane of stabbing spears and lashing clubs. But he moved in a blinding blur of steel. Spears bent on his armor or swished empty air and his sword sang its death-song. The fighting madness of his race was upon him, and with a red mist of unreasoning fury wavering before his blazing eyes, he cleft skulls, smashed breasts, severed limbs, ripped out entrails, and littered the deck like a shambles with a ghastly harvest of brains and blood. Invulnerable in his armor, his back against the mast, he heaped mangled corpses at his feet, until his enemies gave back, panting in rage and fear. Then, as they lifted their spears to cast them, and he tensed himself to leap and die in the midst of them, a shrill cry froze the lifted arms. They stood like statues, the black giants posed for the spear-casts, the mailed swordsman with his dripping blade. Belit sprang before the blacks, beating down their spears. She turned toward Conan, her bosom heaving, her eyes flashing. Fierce fingers of wonder caught at his heart. She was slender, yet formed like a goddess, at once lithe and voluptuous. Her only garment was a broad silken girdle. Her white ivory limbs and the ivory globes of her breasts drove a beat of fierce passion through the Cimmerian's pulse, even in the panting fury of battle. Her rich black hair, black as a Stygian night, 
fell in rippling burnished clusters down her supple back. Her dark eyes burned on the Cimmerian. She was untamed as a desert wind, supple and dangerous as a she-panther. She came close to him, heedless of his great blade, dripping with blood of her warriors. Her supple thigh brushed against it, so close she came to the tall warrior. Her red lips parted as she stared up into his somber, menacing eyes. "'Who are you?' she demanded. "'By Ishtar, I have never seen your like, though I have ranged the seas from the coasts of Zingara to the fires of the ultimate south. Whence come you?' "'From Argos,' he answered shortly, alert for treachery. Let her slim hand move toward the jeweled dagger in her girdle, and a buffet of his open hand would stretch her senseless on the deck. Yet in his heart he did not fear. He had held too many women, civilized or barbaric, in his iron-thewed arms not to recognize the light that burned in the eyes of this one. "'You are no soft Iborian,' she exclaimed. You are fierce and hard as a gray wolf. Those eyes were never dimmed by city lights. Those thews were never softened by life amid marble walls. I am Conan, a Cimmerian, he answered. To the people of the exotic climes, the north was a mazy, half-mythical realm, people with ferocious blue-eyed giants who occasionally descended from their icy fastnesses with torch and sword. Their raids had never taken them as far south as Shem, and this daughter of Shem made no distinction between Aesir, Vanir, or Cimmerian. With the unerring instinct of her elemental feminine, she knew she had found her lover, and his race meant naught save as it invested him with the glamour of four lands. "'And I am Belit,' she cried, as one might say, "'I am queen.' "'Look at me, Conan,' she threw wide her arms. "'I am Belit, queen of the Black Coast. "'Oh, tiger of the north, you are cold as the snowy mountains which bred you.' Take me and crush me with your fierce love. Go with me to the ends of the earth and the ends of the sea. I am a queen by fire and steel and slaughter. Be thou my king. His eyes swept the blood-stained ranks, seeking expressions of wrath or jealousy. He saw none. The fury was gone from the ebon faces. He realized that to these men... Belit was more than a woman, a goddess whose will was unquestioned. He glanced at the Argus, wallowing in the crimson sea-wash, healing far over, her decks awash, held up by the grappling irons. He glanced at the blue-fringed shore, at the far green hazes of the ocean, at the vibrant figure which stood before him, and his barbaric soul stirred within him. To quest these shining blue realms with that white-skinned young tiger-cat, to love, laugh, wonder, and pillage. I'll sail with you, 
he grunted, shaking the red drops from his blade. Oh, Nyaga, her voice twanged like a bowstring, fetch herbs and dress your master's wounds. The rest of you bring aboard the plunder and cast off. As Conan sat with his back against the poop rail, while the old shaman attended to the cuts on his hands and limbs, the cargo of the ill-fated Argus was quickly shuffled aboard the Tigris and stored in small cabins below the deck. Bodies of the crew and of fallen pirates were cast overboard to the swarming sharks, while wounded blacks were laid in the waist to be bandaged. Then the grappling irons were cast off, and as the Argus sank silently into the blood-flecked waters, the Tigris moved off southward to the rhythmic clack of the oars. As they moved out over the glassy blue deep, Belit came to the poop. Her eyes were burning like those of a she-panther in the dark, as she tore off her ornaments, her sandals, and her silken girdle, and cast them at his feet. Rising on tiptoe, arms stretched upward, a quivering line of naked white, she cried to the desperate horde, Wolves of the blue sea, behold ye now the dance, the mating dance of Belit, whose fathers were kings of Ascalon. As she danced, like the spin of a desert whirlwind, like the leaping of a quenchless flame, like the urge of creation and the urge of death, her white feet spurned the blood-stained deck, and dying men forgot death as they gazed frozen at her. Then, as the white stars glimmered through the blue velvet dusk, making her whirling body a blur of ivory fire, with a wild cry she threw herself at Conan's feet, and the blind flood of the Cimmerian's desire swept all away as he crushed her panting form against the black plates of his corseleted breast. End of chapter 1chapter 2 of conan and the queen of the black coast by robert e howard this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 2 the black lotus in that dead citadel of crumbling stone her eyes were snared by that unholy sheen and curious madness took me by the throat as of a rival lover thrust between the Song of Belit The Tigris ranged the sea, and the black villages shuddered. Tom-toms beat in the night, with the tale that the she-devil of the sea had found a mate, an iron man whose wrath was as that of a wounded lion, and survivors of butchered Stygian ships named Belit with curses, and a white warrior with fierce blue eyes. So the Stygian princes remembered this man long and long, and their memory was a bitter tree which bore crimson fruit in the years to come. But heedless as a vagrant wind, the Tigris cruised the southern coasts, until she anchored at the mouth of a broad, sullen river, whose banks were jungle-clouded walls of mystery. This is the river Zarkheba, which is death said Belit. Its waters are poisonous. 
See how dark and murky they run. Only venomous reptiles live in that river. The black people shun it. Once a Stygian galley, fleeing from me, fled up the river and vanished. I anchored in this very spot, and days later the galley came floating down the dark waters, its deck blood-stained and deserted. Only one man was on board, and he was mad and died gibbering. The cargo was intact, but the crew had vanished into silence and mystery. My lover, I believe there is a city somewhere on that river. I have heard tales of giant towers and walls glimpsed afar off by sailors who dared go part way up the river. We fear nothing, Conan. Let us go and sack that city. Conan agreed. He generally agreed to her plans. Hers was the mind that directed their raids, his arm that carried out her ideas. It mattered little to him where they sailed or whom they fought, so long as they sailed and fought. He found the life good. Battle and raid had then their crew, only some eighty spearmen remained, scarcely enough to work the long galley. But Belit would not take the time to make the long cruise southward to the island kingdoms where she recruited her buccaneers. She was afire with eagerness for her latest venture. So the tigress swung into the river mouth, the oarsmen pulling strongly as she breasted the broad current. They rounded the mysterious bend that shut out the sight of the sea, and sunset found them forging steadily against the sluggish flow, avoiding sandbars where strange reptiles coiled. Not even a crocodile did they see, nor any four-legged beast or winged bird coming down to the water's edge to drink. On through the blackness that preceded moonrise they drove, between banks that were solid palisades of darkness whence came mysterious rustlings and stealthy footfalls, and the gleam of grim eyes. And once an inhuman voice was lifted in awful mockery, the cry of an ape, Belit said, adding that the souls of evil men were imprisoned in these manlike animals as punishment for past crimes. But Conan doubted, for once in a gold-barred cage in an Harkanian city, he had seen an abysmally sad-eyed beast, which men told him was an ape, and there had been about it naught of the demonic malevolence which vibrated in the shrieking laughter that echoed from the black jungle. Then the moon rose, a splash of blood ebon-barred, and the jungle awoke in horrific bedlam to greet it. Roars and howls and yells set the black warriors to trembling, but all this noise, Conan noted, came from farther back in the jungle, as if the beasts, no less than men, shunned the black waters of Zarkheba. Rising above the black denseness of the trees and above the wavering fronds, the moon silvered the river, and their wake became a rippling scintillation of phosphorescent bubbles that widened like a shining road of bursting jewels. The oars dipped into the shining water, and came up sheathed in frosty silver. The plumes on the warrior's headpiece nodded in the wind, and the gems on sword-hilts and harness sparkled frostily. 
The cold light struck icy fire from the jewels in Belit's clustered black locks as she stretched her lithe figure on a leopard-skin throne on the deck. Supported on her elbows, her chin resting on her slim hands, she gazed up into the face of Conan, who lounged beside her, his black mane stirring in the faint breeze. Belit's eyes were dark jewels burning in the moonlight. Mystery and terror are about us, Conan, and we glide into the realm of horror and death, she said. Are you afraid? A shrug of his mailed shoulders was his only answer. I am not afraid either, she said meditatively. I was never afraid. I have looked into the naked fangs of death too often. Conan, do you fear the gods? I would not tread on their shadow, answered the barbarian conservatively. Some gods are strong to harm, others to aid. At least so say their priests. Mithra of the Hyborians must be a strong god, because his people have builded their cities over the world. But even the Hyborians fear Set. And Bel, god of thieves, is a good god. When I was a thief in Zamora, I learned of him. What of your own gods? I have never heard you call on them. Their chief is Krom. He dwells on a great mountain. What used to call on him? Little he cares if men live or die. Better to be silent than to call his attention to you. He will send you dooms, not fortune. He is grim and loveless. But at birth he breathes power to strive and slay into a man's soul. What else shall men ask of the gods? But what of the worlds beyond the river of death? she persisted. There is no hope here or hereafter in the cult of my people, answered Conan. In this world men struggle and suffer vainly, finding pleasure only in the bright madness of battle, dying their souls into a gray misty realm of clouds and icy winds, to wander cheerlessly throughout eternity. Belit shuddered. Life, bad as it is, is better than such a destiny. What do you believe, Conan? He shrugged his shoulders. I have known many gods. He who denies them is as blind as he who trusts them too deeply. I seek not beyond death. It may be the blackness averred by the Nemedian skeptics, or Krom's realm of ice and cloud or the snowy plains and vaulted halls of the Nordheimer's Valhalla, I know not, nor do I care. Let me live deep while I live. Let me know the rich juices of red meat and stinging wine on my palate, the hot embraces of white arms, the mad exultation of battle when the blue blades flame and crimson, and I am content. Let teachers and priests and philosophers brood over questions of reality and illusion. I know this. If life is illusion, then I am no less an illusion. And being thus, the illusion is real to me. I live. I burn with life. I love. I slay. And am content. But the gods are real, she said, pursuing her own line of thought. And above all are the gods of the Shemites. 
Ishtar, and Ashtoreth, and Derketo, and Adonis. Bel, too, was Shemitish, for he was born in ancient Shumir long, long ago, and went forth laughing with curled beard and impish wise eyes to steal the gems of the kings of old times. There is life beyond death. I know, and I know this too, Conan of Cimmeria. She rose lithely to her knees and caught him in a pantherish embrace. My love is stronger than any death. I have lain in your arms, panting with the violence of our love. You have held and crushed and conquered me, drawing my soul to your lips with the fierceness of your bruising kisses. My heart is welded to your heart. My soul is part of your soul. Were I still in death and you fighting for life, I would come back from the abyss to aid you. Ay, whether my spirit floated with the purple sails on the crystal sea of paradise, or writhed on the molten flames of hell, I am yours, and all the gods and all their eternities shall not sever us. A scream rang from the lookout in the bows. Thrusting Belit aside, Conan bounded up, his sword a long silver glitter in the moonlight, his hair bristling at what he saw. The black warrior dangled above the deck, supported by what seemed a dark pliant tree-trunk arching over the rail. Then he realized that it was a gigantic serpent which had writhed its glistening length up the side of the bow and gripped the luckless warrior in its jaws. Its dripping scales shone leprously in the moonlight as it reared its form high above the deck, while the stricken man screamed and writhed like a mouse in the fangs of a python. Conan rushed into the bows, and swinging his great sword, hewed nearly through the giant trunk, which was thicker than a man's body. Blood drenched the rails as the dying monster swayed far out, still gripping its victim, and sank into the river, coil by coil, lashing the water to bloody foam, in which man and reptile vanished together. Thereafter Conan kept the lookout watch himself, but no other horror came crawling up from the murky depths, and as dawn whitened over the jungle, he sighted the black fangs of towers jutting up among the trees. He called Belit, who slept on the deck, wrapped in his scarlet cloak, and she sprang to his side, eyes blazing. Her lips were parted to call orders to her warriors to take up a bow and spears. Then her lovely eyes widened. It was but the ghost of a city on which they looked when they cleared a jutting jungle-clad point and swung in toward the end-curving shore. Weeds and rank river-grass grew between the stones of broken piers and shattered paves that had once been streets and spacious plazas and broad courts. From all sides, except that toward the river, the jungle crept in, unmasking fallen columns and crumbling mounds with poisonous green. Here and there buckling towers reeled drunkenly against the morning sky, and broken pillars jutted up among the decaying walls. In the center space 
a marble pyramid was spired by a slim column, and on its pinnacle sat or squatted something that Conan supposed to be an image until his keen eyes detected life in it. "'It is a great bird,' said one of the warriors, standing in the bows. "'It is a monster bat,' insisted another. "'It is an ape,' said Belit. Just then the creature spread broad wings and flapped off into the jungle. "'A winged ape,' said old Inyaga uneasily. "'Better we had cut our throats than come to this place. It is haunted.' Belit mocked at his superstitions and ordered the galley run in ashore and tied to the crumbling wharf. She was the first to spring ashore, closely followed by Conan, and after them trooped the ebon-skinned pirates, white plumes waving in the morning wind, spears ready, eyes rolling dubiously at the surrounding jungle. Overall brooded a silence as sinister as that of a sleeping serpent. Belit posed picturesquely among the ruins, the vibrant life in her lithe figure contrasting strangely with the desolation and decay about her. The sun flamed up slowly, sullenly above the jungle, flooding the towers with a dull gold that left shadows lurking beneath the tottering walls. Belit pointed to a slim, round tower that reeled on its rotting base. A broad expanse of cracked grass-grown slabs led up to it, flanked by fallen columns, and before it stood a massive altar. Philippe went swiftly along the ancient floor and stood before it. This was the temple of the old ones, she said. Look, you can see the channels for the blood along the sides of the altar, and the rains of ten thousand years have not washed the dark stains from them. The walls have all fallen away, but this stone block defies time and the elements. But who were these old ones? demanded Conan. She spread her slim hands helplessly. Not even in legendary is this city mentioned. But look at the handholds at either end of the altar. Priests often conceal their treasures beneath their altars. Four of you lay hold and see if you can lift it. She stepped back to make room for them, glancing up at the tower which loomed drunkenly above them. Three of the strongest blacks had gripped the handholds cut into the stone, curiously unsuited to human hands, when Belit sprang back with a sharp cry. They froze in their places, and Conan, bending to aid them, wheeled with a startled curse. "'A snake in the grass,' she said, backing away. "'Come and slay it. The rest of you bend your backs to the stone.' Conan came quickly toward her, another taking his place. As he impatiently scanned the grass for the reptile, the giant blacks braced their feet, grunted and heaved with their huge muscles coiling and straining under their ebon skin. The altar did not come off the ground, but it revolved suddenly on its side, and simultaneously there was a grinding rumble above, and the tower came crashing down covering the four black men with broken masonry. A cry of horror rose from their comrades. Belit's slim fingers dug into Conan's arm muscles. There was no serpent, she whispered, 
It was but a ruse to call you away. I feared the old ones guarded their treasure well. Let us clear away the stones. With Herculean labor they did so, and lifted out the mangled bodies of the four men. And under them, stained with their blood, the pirates found a crypt carved in the solid stone. The altar, hinged curiously with stone rods and sockets on one side, had served as its lid. And at first glance the crypt seemed brimming with liquid fire, catching the early light with a million blazing facets. Undreamable wealth lay before the eyes of the gaping pirates. Diamonds, rubies, bloodstones, sapphires, turquoises, moonstones, opals, emeralds, amethysts, unknown gems that shone like the eyes of evil women. The crypt was filled to the brim with bright stones that the morning sun struck with lambent flame. With a cry, Belit dropped to her knees among the blood-stained rubble on the brink, and thrust her white arms shoulder-deep into that pool of splendor. She withdrew them, clutching something that brought another cry to her lips, a long string of crimson stones that were like clots of frozen blood strung on a thick gold wire. In their glow the golden sunlight changed to bloody haze. Belit's eyes were like a woman's in a trance. The Shemite soul finds a bright drunkenness in riches and material splendor, and the sight of this treasure might have shaken the soul of a sated emperor of Shushan. "'Take up the jewels, dogs!' Her voice was shrill with her emotions. "'Look!' A muscular black arm stabbed toward the tigress, and Belit wheeled, her crimson lips a snarl, as if she expected to see a rival corsair sweeping in to despoil her of her plunder. But from the gunwales of the ship a dark shape rose, soaring away over the jungle. "'The devil-ape has been investigating the ship,' muttered the blacks uneasily. "'What matter?' cried Belit with a curse, raking back a rebellious lock with an impatient hand. Make a litter of spears and mantles to bear these jewels. Where the devil are you going? To look at the galley, grunted Conan. That bat thing might have knocked a hole in the bottom, for all we know. He ran swiftly down the cracked wharf and sprang aboard. A moment's swift examination below decks, and he swore heartily, casting a clouded glance in the direction the bat thing had vanished. He returned hastily to Belit superintending the plundering of the crypt. She had looped the necklace about her neck, and on her naked white bosom the red clots glimmered darkly. A huge naked black stood crotch-deep in the jewel-brimming crypt, scooping up great handfuls of splendor to pass them to eager hands above. Strings of frozen iridescence hung between the dusky fingers, Drops of red fire dripped from his hands, piled high with starlight and rainbow. It was as if a black titan stood straddle-legged in the bright pits of hell, his lifted hands full of stars. "'That flying devil has staved in the water-casks,' said Conan. "'If we hadn't been so dazed by these stones, we'd have heard the noise.' 
We were fools not to have left a man on guard. We can't drink this river water. I'll take twenty men and search for fresh water in the jungle. She looked at him vaguely, in her eyes the blank blaze of her strange passion, her fingers working at the gems on her breast. Very well, she said absently, hardly heeding him. I'll get the loot aboard. The jungle closed quickly about them, changing the light from gold to gray. From the arching green branches creepers dangled like pythons. The warriors fell into single file, creeping through the primordial twilights like black phantoms following a white ghost. Underbrush was not so thick as Conan had anticipated. The ground was spongy, but not slushy. Away from the river it sloped gradually upward. Deeper and deeper they plunged into the green waving depths, and still there was no sign of water, either running stream or stagnant pool. Conan halted suddenly, his warriors freezing into basaltic statues. In the tense silence that followed, the Cimmerian shook his head irritably. "'Go ahead,' he grunted to a sub-chief Ngora. "'March straight on until you can no longer see me. Then stop and wait for me. I believe we're being followed. I heard something.' The blacks shuffled their feet uneasily, but did as they were told. As they swung onward, Conan stepped quickly behind a great tree, glaring back along the way they had come. From that leafy fastness anything might emerge. Nothing occurred. The faint sounds of the marching spearmen faded in the distance. Conan suddenly realized that the air was impregnated with an alien and exotic scent. Something gently brushed his temple. He turned quickly. From a cluster of green, curiously-leafed stalks, great black blossoms nodded at him. One of these had touched him. They seemed to beckon him, to arch their pliant stems toward him. They spread and rustled, though no wind blew. He recoiled, recognizing the black lotus, whose juice was death and whose scent brought dream-haunted slumber. But already he felt a sudden lethargy stealing over him. He sought to lift his sword, to hew down the serpentine stalks, but his arm hung lifeless at his side. He opened his mouth to shout to his warriors, but only a faint rattle issued. The next instant, with appalling suddenness, the jungle wavered and dimmed out before his eyes. He did not hear the screams that burst out awfully not far away as his knees collapsed, letting him pitch limply to the earth. Above his prostrate form the great black blossoms nodded in the windless air. End of chapter 2「Truth is stranger than fiction, and this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. A well located in Great Valley, New York, actually inhales and exhales because of variations in barometric pressure. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a person who cheated death. Most of the great memorials built around the world are in memory of the dead. 
But there's a memorial in Edinburgh, Scotland, that was built for the opposite reason. It's in honor of someone who escaped death. It's carved in the stones of a house that had collapsed, trapping a young man under piles of stone and timber. On the memorial, there's a portrait of the boy and the words with which he greeted his rescuers. Heave away, chaps. I'm not dead yet. Believe it or not. Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 26 A Distortion sure you're all right to do this now. You can take a few days off to recover if you need. 
No, it's fine. Tim's getting me a coffee, and I'd rather get this down while it's still fresh in my mind. Besides, you didn't give Martin any time off when he had a bad experience. Martin had to start living in the archives. I mean, I could hardly give him a holiday in the office. Anyway, he wasn't injured. It's just a scratch, John. I'll be fine. Can we begin? Okay. Statement of Sasha James, Assistant Archivist at the Magnus Institute, London. Regarding... Let's just call it a series of paranormal sightings. Statement recorded direct from subject, 2nd of April, 2016. Right. Well, I'm sure you know, I was sceptical about how dangerous this Jane Prentice was when you first suggested Martin stay in the archives. I mean, it's not that I didn't believe him about what happened. It just seemed... Well, Martin is a great researcher, but his self-preservation instincts are not the strongest. And to be frank, I thought that if this Prentice were a danger everyone seemed to think, then he'd almost certainly be dead. Don't get me wrong, I mean, I've read the same statements and profiles as you, so I know how many people have died because of her. What was it, six hospital staff when she was first admitted? Six from colonisation and a seventh with a broken neck from her escape. But that was two years ago, and whatever she is now... It sounds like her condition is degenerating. I just wasn't sure how much damage she'd still be capable of. So I guess I didn't take as much care as I should have when I was coming into the Institute yesterday. The thing is, I'm still not sure how much of a threat she is. I've seen plenty of those silver worm things squirming about outside, same as you, and that made a point to step on them every time. What happened just made things more complicated, I guess. I'm not really sure what to think. I'll start with the first thing I noticed. I live up near Finsbury Park, and my building is old, Victorian, I think. And though it's been repaired and maintained quite well, it's got all sorts of strange little quirks. One of these is the windows. The actual windows in the flats are fine, but the stairwell, they have slightly warped glass where the windows have those little bubbles. Looking down on the street below can be a bit strange as the glass bends the light and distorts whatever's below it. I never really paid much attention to it until a few days ago, but it's not a new thing. It was the day before yesterday when I first saw it. When I'm heading down the stairs in the morning, I sometimes like to spend a few seconds looking out of the window at the people on the street below. I'll move my head so that I see them through the warped glass, and they'll distort like a funhouse mirror. It's a bit daft, but I have a pretty dreary commute down to Victoria, so I take my fun where I can get it. But on that morning, I paused before the window, and noticed one of the warped figures below was... off. Slightly. It looked too tall. The limbs and body were very thin and almost wavy like they didn't have any structure or bones in them. I, I couldn't make out a face, but it was the hands that were most bizarre. They seemed to be stretched and inflated by the distorted light until they were almost the size of the rest of the torso. Their fingers were long and stiff and seemed to end in sharp points. It stood completely motionless and I could feel it staring at me. Moving my head to the side, I saw that the actual person I had been looking at 
was a large man with long blonde hair. He was neither stood still nor facing me, instead moving around the display of the flower shop opposite my building. Nothing about the guy seemed especially out of place, but I made a mental note to keep a lookout for him. I checked again through the bubble of the bended glass, and again I saw that tall figure with its limp arms and huge hands. Now you know me, John. I'm, I'm not exactly the bravest person in the world. I generally avoid horror and I tend to stay off roller coasters in the rare situation I have a chance to ride them. So I was surprised as anyone that this undeniably sinister figure wasn't causing me more distress. I mean, I was a bit nervous, sure. I've never had any direct experience with the supernatural before, and the more I looked and checked and double-checked, the more sure I was that supernatural was exactly what it was. To be honest, I was surprised how quickly I accepted that. I've always considered myself a bit of a sceptic, and until recently I'd have said working at the Institute only made me more so. Anyway, I watched it for about ten minutes, until the blonde man brought a small bunch of lilies and walked away. Once he was gone, the distorted figure with the long hands disappeared as well. I headed down into the street and over to the flower shop. The woman working there gave me a bit of a confused look when I asked if there had just been a tall blonde man in her shop. She said yes, there had, and no, she hadn't noticed anything strange. And was I looking to buy some flowers? I was quite confused myself and on a bit of an edge when I left. I was already late for work though, so I decided to ignore it and just keep an eye out. Sure enough, it wasn't too long before I saw him again. There's a small cafe I generally pop into when I head to work in the morning. I love the Institute's building, of course, it's beautiful, but from a money point of view, I really wish it wasn't in Chelsea. <laughs> Everything around here is so expensive. I generally walk down from Victoria Station. It's a long walk, but quite pretty, and it gives me a chance to pick up a coffee on the way. As I said, I was running late that morning, so I was a bit conflicted about whether to get one, but as I looked in the window, I saw a familiar figure at one of the corner tables. Again, the blonde guy wasn't looking in my direction, nor did he seem to give any indication that he was aware of my existence. He was there, though, and I was on the verge of walking in and confronting him when I noticed the time and decided getting to work was more important. Besides, what's that old saying? Once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. I decided that if he turned up a third time, then I would ask him something. I don't really know what I was planning to ask him. Are you secretly a monster? Probably would have been a great opener. When I got here, I realised I needn't have worried so much about the time. You were having some argument with Tim about, um, oh, who's that architect he's obsessed with? Robert Smirk. Yeah, that's the one. So I was starting to regret not getting a coffee and talking to tall, blonde and monster, since it didn't seem like I'd have missed much. I got on with my work, did some filing, cross-checked a few statements with police incident reports. I mean, I guess I don't need to tell you what a day working the archives entails. It was a quiet day, aside from when Martin thought he saw one of those silver worms and we spent half an hour checking for it. Yes, I remember. Come on, it's not his fault he's being stalked by some weird living hive. I know, but it would have to have been Martin, wouldn't it? I mean, 
anything goes wrong around here, it always seems to happen to him. Anyway, we're getting off topic. Why didn't you report this? Seriously? If a member of the public came in, you would have torn that statement to shreds. No, I, I figured I'd get more evidence, or it wasn't worth mentioning. Nothing else had happened until I left work. It must have been about half past six, so the sun was just about starting to go down, and I headed back up towards Victoria. The first thing I noticed out of the ordinary was that the cafe was still open. Normally they shut up about six o'clock, but the lights were on and the door was open. I couldn't see anyone behind the counter though, and there was only one customer. He sat there in the exact same position he'd been in that morning, drinking what could easily have been the exact same coffee. I looked around to see if there was anyone else who could confirm what I was seeing. The street was empty, but as I looked, a car drove past. In the curving glass of its tinted windows, I saw him there, the weird, distorted body, rail thin and limp, the hands huge and sharp. And then the car passed on, and I turned back to see a normal-looking man. But now, for the first time, he was looking at me. He gestured to the chair across from him, clearly inviting me inside. I don't know why I wasn't more scared going in there, but I wasn't. My curiosity apparently conquered my nervousness. He didn't speak when I sat down, and I saw his coffee cup was empty. Whatever was inside had dried up hours ago. He seemed to be waiting for me to ask him a question. So I asked him what he was. He laughed at this, the first sound I'd heard him make, and it sounded unnatural like he was laughing very quietly, but someone had turned up the volume so I could hear it. He said it didn't matter what he was, that he couldn't describe it even if he wanted to. What was the phrase he used? How would a melody describe itself when asked? This put my back up a bit, to be honest, and I told him if he was going to talk in cheap riddles, I was just going to leave. He actually apologised told me I could call him Michael. I didn't want to call him Michael. It didn't seem to fit somehow, and the way he said it made me think that it definitely was not his name. Still, it wasn't like I had any other name for him. No, not for him. For it. It sat there, clearly waiting for me to ask another question, so I did. I asked it what it wanted, and was told that it wanted to help. Help? With... what? That's what I said. Did it want to stop Jane Prentice? It laughed that weird laugh again, and told me that I had no idea what was really going on. It didn't sound like it had any intention of telling me, though. It just seemed like it was amused by my attempts to understand. Then it said it didn't care if I or my companions lived or died, but that the flesh hive was always rash. It said it wanted to be friends. When it said that, it put its hand in mine, and it may have looked like a human hand, but it was heavy. It felt like a wet leather bag full of heavy stones, sharp stones. 
I pulled my hand away quickly and got up to leave. By this point, I was just about sick of this weird thing that looked like a person, but was not a person, and talked in riddles. It made no move to stop me as I headed towards the door. As I was about to exit, though, it called after me and said if I was interested in saving your life, it would be waiting at Hamwell Cemetery. Sorry, saving my life? Yes, it called you by name. You and Martin and Tim. That's unsettling. It really was. At the time, I just tried to ignore it. I went home and I got as much sleep as I could. I don't know if you noticed how tired I was yesterday, what with Tim's April Fool's joke and everything. Don't remind me. Well, I was a bit of a mess. I checked the cafe on the way in and on the way home. I even went down there on my lunch, but Michael wasn't there. Part of me wanted to tell you about it immediately to make a statement, but even if you believe me, I knew you'd try and talk me out of going to Hamwell Cemetery, and I had just about made my mind up to go. I didn't know if what Michael had said was a threat or a warning or just a lie, but I decided I couldn't take the chance, so I went to the cemetery. The sun was starting to go down when I got there, and the gates of the graveyard were lit with a bright orange of the dying light. It had been raining earlier that day, and the pools of water reflected the vivid colours of the sky. Hanwell is an old cemetery, and past the walls I could see the weathered old gravestones standing silent. As it turned out, I didn't have to go inside. Michael was waiting for me next to the tall iron gates when I arrived. I caught a glimpse of its reflection in one of the deep pools of rainwater, and shuddered as I saw it again, the warped body and swollen, bony hands. He didn't say anything when I arrived, just nodded at me to follow. I have no idea how long it stood there waiting for me. I expected to go into the graveyard, but instead, Michael started walking down the road towards a nearby row of houses. The sign on the road said, Azalea Close. Most of the buildings were in good repair, but there was one at the end that looked abandoned. It might have been a pub at one point, but now all the windows are boarded with metal sheets and covered with dirt and graffiti. The door, however, was open and swinging gently. Michael went inside, clearly expecting me to follow. So I did. Inside was dark and dusty. I was annoyed with myself that I hadn't thought to bring a torch, but just enough of the setting sun came through the door for me to see by. It clearly had once been a pub, and the bar appeared to be intact, though riddled with woodworm. Sitting on top of it was what looked like a builder's kit with a toolbox and a small fire extinguisher. I was just about to ask Michael why we were here when I heard it. A low, wet groan coming from the far end of the room where the light didn't reach. It sounded like someone in a great deal of pain. I walked towards the noise. As I got closer, my eyes began to adjust, and I saw the floor was covered in pale, writhing shapes. I had to listen to Martin's statement after he recorded it, so I knew what to expect. But hearing about something doesn't even come close to seeing it, to smelling it. I expected to see what Martin described, a squirming mass that was once Jane Prentice, 
but the figure slumped against the wall looked like it was once a man. The worms wriggled in and out through the holes in his skin. The flesh hive, Michael had called it, and the silver things formed clustered knots where his eyes used to be. I couldn't help it. I gasped. It wasn't a loud sound, and given how sick the whole situation made me feel, I think I actually was quite composed. It was loud enough, though. The head snapped around to face me, dislodging a small cascade of twisting shapes. The mouth opened as he tried to scream, but that wasn't what came out of his mouth. The worms also seemed to have taken notice and began to move towards me at an alarming speed. I backed away, but slipped on a piece of loose wood and fell into the bar. I glanced desperately at Michael, but it just watched me, its face unreadable. I started to try and stamp on the worms as they approached, but there was just too many of them. Staggering to my feet, I felt my hand come to rest on something cold and metal, the fire extinguisher. Without thinking, I pulled the pin out and squeezed the handle. A cloud of gas shot out, and to my surprise, the silver worms began to shudder and recoil, shriveling and dying. I began to walk forward, catching every last one in the jet of gas. Finally, I found myself standing over the mass of pitted and hollow skin that was once a man. He shuddered violently as the gas engulfed him and then lay still. I was breathing heavily, and the CO2 from the fire extinguisher was making me feel lightheaded. For some reason, I felt like I should check his pockets. They were empty except for a wallet. It was stained with blood and other substances, but the name on the driver's license was still readable. Timothy Hodge. As I stood there, staring at the wallet, I felt a sharp pain in my right arm. I looked up to see Michael reaching into my shoulder. Its fingers were long and distorted as they reached through my skin, cutting it like paper. I screamed. After a few seconds, it withdrew its hand. Held there was a single silver worm, wriggling pathetically in his grip. I hadn't even felt the thing burrowing into my arm. After that, it's all a bit of a blur. I remember I was going to phone the police, but Timothy Hodges' corpse was gone, and I was worried about trespassing, so I just sort of wandered away. Michael, or whatever it was, had gone as well. Eventually, I found my way back to the Institute, where I must have woken up Martin, and, well, here we are. Yes, I suppose we are. So... What do you think? I, uh... I don't really know. We can look into it more later. I should really quit, you know. We all should. I don't think this is a normal job. I, I don't think this is a safe job. You're probably right. Do you want to quit? No. I'm just, I'm just too damn curious. I suppose. You? No. Whatever's going on, I need to know. Get some rest. 
statement ends. Obviously there is little we can really do to follow up Sasha's experience. If it was any of the others I might have cause to doubt, but she has always been the most level-headed of the team. And if she says that this is what happened, then I believe her. This does at least explain what happened to Timothy Hodge, whose disappearance shortly after making his statement in late 2014 has been something of a concern since I discovered it. It seems odd how different the effect of Prentice's infestation was on him and Harriet Lee, but without more information I don't have a working theory on why that might have been. The thing that most disquiets me about Sasha's statement is this Michael. She seems pretty convinced that he was not human, at least not in the conventional sense. Almost every statement I've catalogued has engaged with the paranormal in some form of antagonistic relationship. The idea that there are things out there like that that want to help us. For some reason, that makes me more uncomfortable than the worm-infested creature stalking the Institute. Sasha has taken a few days off to recuperate and I'm having a word with Elias about getting some extra CO2 fire extinguishers for the archive. Recording ends. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced by Alexander J. Newell, Mike LeBeau, and Murray Porter. And directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos, and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at TheRustyQuill, or email us at mail at RustyQuill.com. Thanks for listening. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. The first official act of King Henry VI was to approve a decree stating he could be spanked by his royal nurse. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a patriot who lived in exile. He taught music for years in Buffalo, New York in the late 1800s and early in the 20th century. But his hearts and his talent were really in Mexico. He was Jamie Nuno who was forced to leave Mexico in 1854 and spend the remainder of his life unknown to his countrymen. A particularly cruel fate, since Nuno was the composer of the Mexican National Anthem. Believe it or not.
strange Dr. Weird. Good evening. Come in, won't you? Well, what's the matter? You seem a bit nervous. Perhaps the cemetery outside this house has upset you. But there are things far worse than cemeteries. For instance, being lost in a wilderness. A wilderness where death is never more than a few inches away. As in the story I want to tell you tonight. A story I call Dead Man's Paradise. My story begins in the wild and desolate swamplands near the mouth of the Mississippi River. In a small Cajun shack, all but hidden by the overhanging cypress trees, Andre Morel speaks to his son, Paul. <coughs> Paul, the sun has been up for an hour already. You must see to our traps. Yeah, but, Father, you're ill. I don't like leaving you here alone. I'll be all right. <coughs> No, please, tend to the traps. Very well, Father. I'll be back just as soon as I... Stick him up, over here. Who are you? What do you want? You'll find out soon enough, old man. Duke, get that rifle of theirs over the fireplace. Okay. <laughs> you must be the two bank robbers the radio was warning everyone about. That's right, bright boy. Now every cop in Louisiana is looking for us. How far are we from New Orleans? Forty miles. Forty miles, huh? Well, you're taking us there in your boat. But we lend our boat to Pierre Duvel... Besides, no boat can get through swamps. Hey, Ace, what are we going to do? We figured on sailing right through to New Orleans with no trouble at all. Yeah, we have to make it on foot, that's all. These Cajuns know every inch of the swamp, so Bright Boy here will guide us. No, no, it's impossible. Well, you must. He will kill you if you do not do as he asks. That's right, kid. Your old man's talking sense. But you don't know the swamps. We must travel by narrow Indian trails through bad stretches of quicksand where a single misstep means death. It can't be that bad. Why, on my road map, this region is listed as Paradise Swamp. Yes, but the old name, the name the Indians gave it, was Dead Man's Paradise. Because no stranger who ever entered it came out alive. There's the quicksand, pools of it, waiting to trap strangers. And there are the insects, the mosquitoes that drive men mad. There are the birds, whose shrieks sound like the screams of dying men. Hey, listen to that. That's a lot of malarkey. Right boy here's going to guide us, and that's that. But I can't leave my father here alone. Can't you see he's ill? I don't want to leave him alone any more than you do. He might talk. So I'm going to see to it that none of us have to worry about him anymore. What do you mean? Just this. Father! You, you've killed him. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen to you if you don't do exactly as I tell you. Now let's get started. I want to be in New Orleans by tomorrow night. Welcome for seven hours now, Ace. How far yeah. do you figure we've come? Hey, bright boy. How far we come since this morning? Ten miles. Ten miles? Hey, that ain't bad. Hey, Ace, what's that? That's just a bird, not a ghost. Pull yourself together, Duke. There's nothing to be scared of. Just trees, underbrush, and swamp pools. Yeah, yeah, I know, but every way you turn, everything looks the same. Yeah. We didn't have that Cajun kid to guide us. Hey, look, the huh? kid's trying to give us a slip. Oh, he is, is he? Well, this will teach him. Ace, you hit him. Yeah, I could hardly miss him at this distance. Come on. Should have kept a closer watch on him. Might have known he'd try something like this. Uh, 
Well, here he is. His head's all covered with blood. He's dead, all right. Yeah. You never knew what hit him. Yeah, but Ace, what are we going to do now without the kid to guide us? Now we'll just have to go on the rest of the way by ourselves. But how we find our way every way you turn is nothing but swamp. We can't go on without a guide. Get hold of yourself, you fool. If you lose your head, you're done for. Yeah, but Ace, what chance we... Shut got? up, will you? Listen to what I have to say. Now, by keeping our eyes on the sun and doing a little figuring, we can keep going in the right direction. As for the quicksand, well, we'll just have to watch our step. Just keep saying one thing to yourself. New Orleans is only 30 miles away. And we're going to make it. Uh, Doctor, may I comment upon the verisimilitude demonstrated by the introductory sections of your dramatic effort? Explain yourself, young man. Your story, its design is excellent. Such fine style and expert handling of details. And you know, Doctor, it's those very same qualities that make Adam Hat so outstanding, too. That's because the designs for Adam Hat's are created by experts in their field. The smart styles and carefully handled detail you see in every atom is the product of years of experience. And just as each listener will find a different shade of meaning in a story, so will every man find the shade of color he prefers in the large selection of atom hats. Gentlemen, there's only one logical conclusion to this story about atom hats. Buy one for yourself. An atom hat... As character. Now, back to Dr. Weird's story. And now I'll continue my story, Dead Man's Paradise. Five hours have passed. Five hours of nightmare for Ace and Duke. The shadowy cypress trees and underbrush seemed to become thicker every mile they pushed on. And they were constantly forced to detour around swamp pools and lakes ever mindful of the treacherous quicksands they must avoid. How far do you think we've been away since we left that cage, kid? Yeah, about four or five miles, I guess. Well, look, the sun's going down. It'll be dark before long. What do we do now? Uh, we'll stop pretty soon and wait for dawn. In the morning, we'll push on. Neither of you will ever get out of these swamps alive. Did you hear that? Yeah, that sounded like... You have committed murder. And you must pay. Hey, Ace, it's the voice of that Cajun kid. No, no, it can't be. I knocked him off. It's the voice of his ghost, that's what it is. Oh, don't be a fool. The ones who have died in the swamps say you too must die. Hey, you see, I told you he's come back to get us. Both of you will die in the quicksand. Only 20 feet ahead of you is a pool of quicksand. Hey, you see, here, that is quicksand. Doc, don't be a fool, I tell you. You really think this quicksand ahead here'd warn us? Just a trick to get us to walk in another direction where the quicksand really is. Uh, yes, I, I guess you're right. Why, sure I am. Now keep going straight ahead. Oh, okay. we still got an hour or so until it gets too dark to travel. we got to make the most of it. Yeah, yeah, but just the same way you think. Hey, what's wrong? I stepped into some quicksand. Help me out. I'm sick. Duke, try crawling out. I can't. I keep sinking deeper. Hey, hey, help no, me. No, if I only had a rope or something. Wait till I look around. No, no, don't leave me. Look, how can I help hey, you? Hey, sucking me down. It's already up to my chest. Give me a hand and pull me out, will you? I can't do that. You'd pull me in with you. Why, do something. There's nothing I can do without a rope. No, there must be. Hey, don't let me die like this. Help me, will you? There's only one thing I can do for you, Duke. And this is it. Ah. Duke. He, he's dead. Yeah. He's paid for his crime. 
No, no, you may have gotten Duke, but you won't get me. You won't get me. With an effort, Ace pulled himself together, determined not to suffer Duke's fate. Taking a bearing from the twilight rays of the sun, Ace continued on his way, cautiously scanning the ground before him. Time and time again, the voice of the Cajun boy came echoing through the swamps, mocking Ace's efforts to escape, telling him of the quicksand that lay waiting on every side. There's no escape for you. Just ahead of you lies quicksand. And you are going to die in it. Shut up! Shut up, you Death is waiting for you. In the quicksand ahead. Maybe this will keep you quiet. <laughs> you should have saved one bullet for yourself. Be quiet. Be quiet, you hear? You're dead. You can't talk. You seem confused now. Is the quicksand ahead of you? To the left? To the right? If I were you, I'd turn to the left. Oh, try and outsmart me, aren't you? Well, you can't. I'm going straight ahead. You're making a mistake. There is quicksand just ahead. If it was, you wouldn't be telling me. I know better than to... I'm caught. It is quicksand. I'm sinking. Yes, it's quicksand. And in a minute, you will sink beneath the surface. Then your crimes will be paid for. You, you're, you're not dead. You're alive. I didn't kill it. No. That bullet you fired at me only creased my scalp. Knocked me unconscious. I recovered in time to trail you. Get my revenge. Oh, don't stand there. Get me out of here. I'll confess to anything. Only get me out of here. Why should I help you? You killed my father. No! This is the same pool of quicksand that Duke died in. And now you're going to join him. No, no! You've been wandering around in circles for hours. But I knew you'd end up here. No, no. Oh, don't let me die. Don't let me die. The quicksand is up to your neck now. In a minute, it will reach your mouth. And then, it'll be all over. Save me. I I don't want to die. No, my father didn't want to die either. But you killed him. Help me. You you must help me. Nobody can help you now. Don't let me die. I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to tell you. That this is the only quicksand hole in all the swamp between here and New Orleans. If Ace had only known there was just one pool of quicksand, he might have reached New Orleans. But you see, he let his imagination run wild, envisioned death on all sides. No wonder he traveled in circles and ended up dead. I know another case where... Oh, you have to go now? Too bad. 
but perhaps you'll drop in on me again soon. I'm always home. Just look for the house on the other side of the cemetery. The house of Dr. Weir. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. A tombstone in Vermont reads, I put my wife beneath this stone for her repose and for my own. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a man who never seemed to grow up. Francisco Sicardi Hungo of Venice was the most incurable juvenile the world has ever seen. He survived five marriages, never suffered a day's illness. His eyesight and hearing were phenomenal to the last. His hair turned black at age 100. He received a government appointment at 115, grew new teeth at 116, and until the end, this venerable Venetian never lacked the companionship of a young lady. Believe it or not.
Turn out your lights. Turn them out. Have you heard the story? Castle by the sea? <laughs> then listen while the hermit tells you the story. <laughs> Climb the mountain over there to the west and get a good look at the old castle. Well, let's rest first. All right. Uh, when we started walking this morning, the old ruins looked quite near. I'll wager we've walked three miles since morning. Seems as far away as it did when we started out. Yes. Glory, but this is a beautiful spot, Marie. Isn't it, though? Oh, David, it was grand of you to pick such a beautiful spot for us to vacation in. I knew you'd like it. Look at the sea. It sparkles like an opal. Yes. Off in the distance, it looks as white as milk. Way out in the water, I see two tiny little ships. See them? Yes, I think I do. It's so beautiful here. You'd almost think you might be dreaming. The ships are so far away, you might think they're unreal. As idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. That's from something I read as a child. Yes, remember it? Well, not right now. Day after day, day after day, we stuck. No breath, no motion. As idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. What's it from? The ancient man. That's right. And the tall, desolate castle over there in the distance gives me as many shivers as the ancient mariner did when I first read it. Shiver over the castle, darling, because of the story the hotel proprietor told me about it. Why did he act so mysterious? Oh, I think the natives around here actually believe the old place is haunted. Do they really? Okay, let's walk over into the... The other hotel said we wouldn't be able to get beyond the gate. There's an old servant woman who lives in it. She guards the place like a dragon. An old woman lives all alone in that desolate place? That's what he said. Think of it. Where's the owner? It's on the continent somewhere, I think. He's never returned to visit it. Why not? Guess no one knows. But the people at the hotel told me something very queer happened at the castle. All has to do with him. And that's why it's a haunted place now. Oh. Some calamity befell him there, and he left. Never to return. Is he an old man? Must be from the story. Almost become a legend. Must be a man in his 80s. Hmm. Think of it. Let's walk over to it, Dave, and at least see it from a closer vantage point. I'm willing. All right. We ought to reach it in another half hour. Queer, Marie. We sat down here to rest. The sky was clear as a diamond. Now it's getting cloudy, isn't it? Yes. Look, how fast the clouds are gathering, and they all seem to meet right at the top of the castle. By George, they do. The old ruins, the rendezvous for the storms that scatter over the sea. Ah, oh, you're only trying to frighten me and make it sound all the more mysterious. Yes, it was. We ought to turn back to the hotel. When we come this far? Oh, never. They get caught in a nasty storm, you know. Something weird about thunder in the heart of daytime, isn't there? I always associate it with black night. You may have black night any time now. Perhaps the old servant who will give us shelter in the castle. Oh, that's what you're counting on, is it? Ask me how far it is to the castle, Dave. We know how far it is. We have to start climbing the hill in a minute. Absolutely, lovely, lovely. I've seen the queer lights coming from it at night. 
bewitched, that's what it is. Listen, you don't really believe that now, do you? Yes, I do. Have you ever been near it? Once, a year ago, I went up to the Kneedle. Oh, that's right. I guess we'll venture up the mountain anyway. It's gonna storm, sir. I wouldn't go. Hear the thunder? When a storm comes up here on the sea, it's quite bad. We'll take a chance. But thank you for your information. The sea washes right up to the edge of the slope of this mountain. Real high, too. You won't be able to get away. We won't stay long. Now, we won't get caught. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. You believe the story right enough. You ready to climb? Yes, I'm more anxious now. Strange lights coming from it at night. Weird faces peering out. Who wouldn't want to go? Inquisitive woman would. Ah, here's a path to follow. Makes climbing easier. If we're near the top of the hill, the thunder sounds closer. But we've spotted its hiding place. Look! Mm, it's an enormous structure. All castles are. The windows are tumbling out, falling into ruin. You should say it is. How could a person live all alone in this place? I wouldn't want the job. It's getting very dark. Here comes the rain. We will have to ask for shelter. The gate's unlocked. Come, we can at least sit on the veranda till the storm breaks. All right, run. Run, it's coming down on a fury now. I hope the lightning doesn't decide to strike this old place. I'm soaking wet. Now see what your inquisitive nature has led us into. You want to come here sad as badly as I did, and you know it. Now we are here. It's nothing but a roof and a first-rate thunder shower for entertainment. Strange, the old servant doesn't come to scare us away. You look so much like a mermaid with your hair streaming down. Maybe you frightened her away. Dave, Dave I, I thought I heard someone moan. Have your ears tuned for ghosts, honey. Hear anything right now? No, I'm certain I heard someone this time. Oh, it's thunder you hear. I can hear the thunder all right. There's another peculiar sound, like a person moaning in distress. Yes, I do hear it now. I wonder what it can be. Do you hear it? Or oh, doesn't it sound like someone crying out in pain? Yes, yes it does. See, see, it's see. What? Over there in the yard, under the tree. By George. Must be the old servant woman. And she's ill. Go get her. Bring her here on the porch, out of the store. Sure. Why, say, I know. May I carry you over to the porch? Out of the storm? Uh, here, let me lift you up. Carry you over to the house. Oh. Am I hurting you? Does it hurt to carry you? Uh, I'm so she hurt, Dave? She will. See if you can open the door so I can carry her inside. It's locked. Well, see if you can find a bunch of keys on her dress. No. No, you can't go in. She doesn't want us inside, Dave. She's ill. We have to take her inside. Here's some keys. Try them. Uh, no, this one doesn't work. Another one. Uh, I believe this one's going to fit. Help her, Andrew. No. 
All right. We'll be back in a few moments and give you something hot to drink. Yes, I... I'm so sick, I... I'm gonna die. Oh, wait. Close the door. Yeah, Now, I... I guess we are in for something. Yes, I guess we are. It's getting nice. Storm hasn't stopped. The old servant is ill, and you and me... Well, it looks as if we had a job on our hands and a night to spend in a desolate castle. She seems to be sleeping now, so I guess we can get some rest. Think you'll be able to sleep in this bed? I could sleep anywhere, weary. This must be a woman's room. Yes, it's filled with things that were once fine and lovely. Oh, I guess I the box down on the food. Lay, wasn't it? Yes. You know, must keep her supplied with enough to live on. Mm. That includes candles, I must say. I wouldn't want to spend a night in this place without light. No, I. Poor old lady. Do you think she is going to die? I think she had a stroke. We should go for a doctor in the morning. We will if she isn't better. She looks as if she'd lived for centuries, doesn't she? It's like a witch out of a fairy story. She has a beautiful old gold pendant around her neck, and she acts as if she were afraid we were going to take it. What was that? The door. The wind blew it open and shut again. Locks are all worn out. Give me the shutters. You're going to listen to all the creaks and noises in this house all night. You'll have delirium tremens, not shutters. Well, let's try and get some sleep. I wish it were morning. Damn. What was that? Three. I told you you'd hear strange sounds all night. That sound came from right under this bed. Open the wall. It did, Dave. Listen to it. Right here. Well, what is it? I'm not Sherlock Holmes. I don't know. There it is again. My golly, that is a queer sound. David. Look. Standing there in the doorway. Look. What is it? A woman. Is it the servant? I don't, I don't know. Speak to her. What do you want? Are you all right? She doesn't speak. It's a young woman. Who are you? She's moving right over by this bed. David! Who are you? What do you want? She's coming closer. She's moving over where the knocking sound comes from. She isn't alive. She's only a human. She stands over by that wall, trying to take the bricks away. Stops working at the wall. 
David and Marie stand transfixed. They think they hear the woman moan then as silently and mysteriously she came. She glides away. <laughs> I'm afraid. Come. Our imaginations are running wild. I can't leave this old woman. Come to her room with me. Stay close beside me. I won't leave you. Here's the door. I'm going to die. Are you so very ill? Should we get a doctor for you? I'm going to die. What can we do for you? Did you see Noreen? Who is Noreen? The spirit of my mistress. She walks the house day and night. And now when I'm gone, she won't have anyone to keep her company. She'll be all alone. All alone. We thought we saw someone come into our room. You did. Laureen, the spirit of my beautiful mistress, trying to save her lover. What is the strange story of this house? When I die, will you stay and keep her company if I... I'll tell you her story, will you? Yes. Yes, we will help you. I, I've guarded the secret all these years. Watched over her spirit. Will you care for her if I, if I tell you the story? We'll watch over her. Well, the owner of this house killed her body, but not her spirit. It lingers on, hunting for her lover, trying to save him. Uh, her husband was a horrible man, a, a brute. The family arranged the marriage. Laureen loved life and beauty. Two years before, she'd fallen in love with a young Spanish gentleman. He, he came right while her husband was away. But the master returned unexpectedly. I had but a second to warn her before he... Walked into a room. I am too early, you mean. Have you had bad news? You look like a thunderbolt. Dismiss your maid. You may go to me. Yes, madam. My dear Noreen, if I am not mistaken. There is someone hiding in your closet. You are mistaken. Tonight, while playing billiards, I learned that your charming Spanish love. You were misinformed. I know there's someone hiding in that closet, and I shall look. Stop! Take my word for it. You swear there was no one in there? Yes. Will you swear by this charm of my ancestors? Carry the crest of my family. Touch your lips to it. Swear to me that there's no one in that closet. I swear. All right. I believe you. Now, call your servant into your room. She's right outside. I'll ring for her. Yes, madam. What did you wish of Dominion? It matters not the hour, Dominion. I wish you to call a stonemason to this room at once. Yes, sir. And I shall sit and wait in this room until he comes. And there he sat. Never taken his eyes off my dear mistress for three hours, waiting for the stonemason. 
and a lover stood waiting for his fate in the closed church. When the stonemason came, I took him into the room. The stonemason is here, sir. That is good. Sir, go and fetch bricks. Bring sufficient to wall up the door of this closet, and then plaster the wall. I want it done tonight while I sit here. Tonight, you hear? It uh, may disturb your sweet sleep, my dear Noreen. No. I shall sleep. Then do the job tonight. Now. Uh, it, it was awful. There he stayed. My poor mistress fainted during the night into a living tomb. Great heaven. It was an awful thing to hear. It rings in my ears tonight. I, I can hear the master laughing as the scratching inside the wall began.
Maybe one of us should have stayed with her instead of us both going to the hotel for help. There's nothing to be done for her. She had another stroke early this morning. She must walk fast. Yes. What a horrible night. What an awful life she's lived. Can it all be true? I don't know. We did see that. Yes, I'm sure we saw the spirit. I know it. It was sounded in the wall. We did hear that. Yes. Oh, look. Here comes the young boy we met yesterday walking along the beach. Is he, isn't it? Shall we tell him we were at the castle? No, don't mention it. At the hotel, we'll explain it. Hello? Hello. Uh, walking again today? Yes, uh, just admiring your scenery along here. I'm going towards the castle now. Look behind you and see what's happening to it. What? <gasps> Look. Yes, it's all a fire. I saw it when I was way down the beach and came running. Merciful And we never looked back and noticed a bolt of lightning had struck it. The whole castle is ablaze. I ran back to save the old servant's day if that old lady's still in there. We can never get there in time to save her. Thirty minutes' walk to the castle from where we stand now. We can never make it. But she's all alone in there. Oh, run, run, David. No use. You... I'm going up to see what I can see. Guess no spirits will bother now. They've all been burned out. I'm glad it's gone. It was Murray, we aren't to blame for this. Don't tell them at the hotel where we were. We stayed in the shelter of a cover overnight. We must stay. They would think we set the place on fire. In the story, the old servant told us as weird as the tale of the ancient mariner. Forever in the fire and the spirit.